This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Yes, working from home. These are the, uh, I guess, modified Takeout Podcast Studios. Hello on CBSN. Glad to be back with you now. Three or four weeks running. All the weeks run together, folks. You know it and I know it. On the Takeout Radio Network, it's great to be to have you with us all over the country. More than 70 radio stations, some of the biggest markets in the country. We thank you for finding us here. And, of course, our earliest adopters on all the great podcast platforms. Great to have you with us. Uh, as I mentioned, working at home, this is sort of my little teeny sermonette. Those of us who are working at home are doing so on behalf of others. If you are not working from home, if you are essential, meaning healthcare meaning a part of the food supply, meaning a first responder, meaning someone who's stocking shelves. Keep at it. We are grateful. We are thankful for the work you are doing. And the rest of us will do our part to make sure we stay on top or at least make sure the COVID-19 situation grows no worse. Great to have you with us. Ro Khanna is a congressman from the 17th District of my home state of California, a Democrat. He is our special guest this week. We had him on the show quite a while ago, but there's a lot of things to talk about now in which he is centrally involved. We'll get to his district in a second because a good part of it is Santa Clara County. And there is an amazing story about a public health official in Santa Clara County and COVID-19 that I want you to listen to. We'll get to that in a second. But there are a couple of things, Congressman. First of all, great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Major, for having me uh, back on. Your podcast has grown a lot. I was one of the uh, <laughs> early guests, uh, and it's uh, uh, congratulations on all your success. Thank you so much. A couple things I want to talk to you about, because among the things you do in the House of Representatives is you are on the House Oversight Committee. As a matter of fact, you're on the Subcommittee on Government Operations. So a story that appeared in the Washington Post very recently, I think you have some knowledge of. It talks about a complaint filed with the Oversight committee from someone who was a volunteer on a ad hoc committee organized by Jared Kushner within the Trump White House to organize or if not organize, help organize or speed up the collection of and distribution of personal protective equipment. And that complaint, according to the Washington Post, and I want to get your verification of that if possible, says that this ad hoc group of volunteers was inexperienced. It favored what it called very important people, VIPs who reported to the White House in some capacity or another and kind of bungled the personal protective equipment operation. What do you know? Well, here's what we know. Uh, This administration has had absolutely no regard for expertise. And a lot of the agencies that were supposed to respond to this were understaffed or their budget slashed. For example, FEMA. I mean, FEMA was the agency that could have set up mobile testing sites across the country. Uh, they didn't have the budgets. They didn't, they didn't have key personnel. The HHS, the key agency, they didn't have key personnel. So because they didn't have a lot of people in place, because they had, didn't have a culture of relying on experts, they went out and got a lot of these volunteers. But the volunteers, even there are two issues. First, they didn't have the competence, right? I mean, it's very complicated to understand why PPE isn't coming to hospitals. Let me give you a, a, a very clear uh, example. Uh, the, the, many people don't know that hospitals have to prepay 
for the PPE. And one of the reasons that they aren't being able to get the PPE is they weren't being willing to, to, to prepay for shipments coming from overseas. Well, that's something that I didn't know until sort of a month into it, talking to healthcare experts. Uh, my guess is an ordinary person, even if they're really smart, won't know that. But someone who's an expert would. And I think what this complaint highlighted is that they were relying on volunteers and then it, they were relying on volunteers who happened to be friends of theirs, who could have been political supporters. Uh, so it just wasn't the best management to get uh, the job done. Have you seen the complaint? I have not. Uh, we, we've, I'm aware of it. Uh, we have a hearing that's supposed to come up uh, uh, later uh, next week. And it's something that Chair uh, Maloney is uh, going to pursue. And based on the reporting in the Washington Post, is that what you understand the complaint contains? The assessment and not necessarily a complaint, but an awareness that this ad hoc group wasn't up to the job and they're still falling behind at the administration level. Yes, that's my understanding. And a concern about who was getting asked to provide help and lead these efforts and whether those people were uh, getting political favoritism. Now, look, it may not have been... Uh, improper in 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 the sense that okay you're going to people you know and those people could be political supporters the broader issue is though why is it that we didn't have these agencies staffed why is it that these agencies have been gutted why are we not relying on people who are experts uh, i mean i wouldn't say okay let's do santa clara county in my district based on all my friends and political supporters and let's go to them for advice and draw up a plan i mean even if they were well-intentioned uh, the point is they, there's something to, to defer to expertise, and, and that's what's been missing. It's said in the story that some of these volunteers didn't have any idea how or had very little comprehension of customs regulations, Food and Drug Administration rules. You talked about hospitals prepaying. It seems to me that there was, if this complaint is accurate, maybe a, just a natural barrier of information about what needed to be done and the kind of questions that needed to be asked and answered before you're trying to put something this massive in motion. Absolutely. And, you know, the people at McKinsey or other these uh, consultants, I mean, they're very talented people, but they don't have, it takes often months for them to study an industry, to get up to speed, to understand all the nuances. And what seems uh, problematic here is that uh, that wasn't done. Let me give you another concrete example. People tell you about the testing bottleneck. Well, the testing bottleneck, as you know, Major, is because we don't have the equipment that Abbott needs. We don't have the swabs. We don't have the actual manufacturing. We, if you talk to CVS and Walmart, uh, they don't have clarity on how they would be reimbursed. And uh, they don't have clarity on who could administer the tests at, uh, in their mobile sites. And so a lot of these are very complex issues that weren't resolved. And they weren't resolved, in my view, because the right experts really understood this, uh, haven't been brought in. Let me ask you about another story that appeared in Political, Politico very recently. It talks about three calls that it re re received some transcripts of between April 24th and May 1st of this year between the Federal Emergency Management Agency personnel and Health and Human Services personnel, where they are in these conversations talking in somewhat vivid terms about Higher death rates can be expected and projected as the economy reopens, and that if mitigation and distancing strategies are not adhered to, hospitals as early as June could be overwhelmed. Your reaction to that? Well, it's deeply concerning. I mean, I, I know there was one report floating around from John Hopkins saying that the death rate could go up to 3,000 a day. Now, they have said that that's not fully done, and it makes all these assumptions, but the point is uh, there are a lot of uh, experts who are concerned uh, that we could either see a phase two or once we start uh, opening up our economy, we could see an increase in death rates because the virus is still there. The summer months haven't made it disappear as some were hopeful that it would. And the biggest thing is we don't have the testing. I mean, the, Dr. Fauci, others have said we need to be testing about seven to eight million people a week uh, and we're not there yet. And so until we can get to that testing, uh, we are going to be at, at risk. And it is described as these conversations almost are a hidden counterpoint to the upbeat assessments from the president. I want you to talk a little bit about that in the 45 seconds we have remaining. And if there are any other thoughts, we'll get to that on the other side of the break. But this idea that, 
what the president says in his overt and repetitive and self-described cheerleading doesn't comport with the facts or doesn't even comport with what his own advisors are discussing behind the scenes. Well, and I'm not partisan about this. As you know, the president put me on this uh, economic recovery task force and I accept it. And tomorrow we have a call with Larry Kudlow and I'm going to share my ideas. But the point is, this is one of those cases you can't just cheerlead the economy. I mean, the president's talent is promotion and marketing and branding. I mean, created the Trump name and that strategy has worked for him economically through a large part of his career. I mean, uh, like it or not, marketing matters. But marketing isn't going to help this economy. This economy, if God forbid we have a phase two or there are more debts, that's going to matter to the economy. If we don't have more testing, that's going to matter. So the fundamentals matter. And that's why I think the cheerleading approach is just not sufficient. That's the voice of Ro Khan, a Democratic congressman, 17th District of California. On the other side of this break, we're going to talk about the fascinating story of Santa Clara County, which is in the congressman's district. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to The Takeout and watching it. We'll see you on the other side of the break. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Great to be with you. Great to be seen on CBSN. Great to be heard on podcast platforms and on great radio stations around the country. All part of the Takeout Podcast triple platform network, something we are very, very proud of. Ro Khan is our special guest, Democratic Congressman, 17th District of California. Within that district, two big counties, Alameda and Santa Clara. But Santa Clara, to my mind, Congressman, I want you in your own words to explain it to our audience, stands out as a place in which a local public health official made a call earlier, I believe, than any other in America on COVID-19. Take it from there. Well, Major, I appreciate uh, your listening to her story and you're being one of the first people to recognize it. Dr. Sarah Cody uh, is an incredible uh, hero in this country. Uh, she had the judgment, first of all, in January uh, to stand up an emergency center in our county when few people thought that COVID was going to get to the place that it has. Uh, and then in early March, she made a decision to stop uh, having gatherings of more than 35, more than 50 uh, people. Uh, that was a very hard decision because this was before people were taking it seriously. Uh, and she was saying, you can't have weddings, you can't have uh, uh, parties. There was a lot of pushback. Uh, but she had the uh, good fortune uh, and good judgment of listening to leading epidemiologists at Stanford, at Santa Clara. And they were telling her every half day that you delay is going to be exponential growth. And then she made the decision to have a shelter in place uh, on March 16th and got six other Bay Area counties to agree with that. Uh, they had a sense of getting all of the local elected officials to agree uh, and the former head of the CDC said that if New York had done what Dr. Cody did, uh, there would have been 80% fewer deaths. And, and the reason she's such an uh, important figure to understand is it shows the importance of uh, how to build a culture of listening to science and not just to your gut. And, and this was a largely leadership. And that uh, set in motion around those counties and then all the way to Sacramento, Governor Newsom and others followed suit, correct? Yes, and Governor Newsom was ahead of any other governor. He was, now it was four days afterwards, and that led to, you know, because these things are exponential, that led to uh, uh, some uh, spread, but he was uh, much more decisive than other governors. And this is not to point the finger of blame. I think by and large, our governors have done uh, a, a, an incredible job. It's simply to say uh, that in these types of cases, our gut, our intuition is often 
uh, not correct. I mean, I, my intuition wasn't correct when we were at 40, 50 cases in this country that suddenly we could be crossing 100,000. But the medical experts, the people who had studied these diseases, they knew. And the question for us as a country is, how do we build a culture that uh, allows for scientific expertise to inform decision making and not just gut? And how do you think California is right now? And what is your level of anxiety as it, like so many other states, begins to reopen? Well, I'm anxious. I mean, I, I think that, again, the Bay Area is making the right decision and Dr. Cody by extending or uh, stay-at-home orders. Uh, but uh, I think it uh, remains to be seen how the opening takes place. It's a very difficult call for people like Governor Newsom because our economy, like every other place, has been devastated. I mean, we've been hit. My district has been hit. We've got small businesses every day. I get 20 30 email requests, we're going under, what can you do? Retail has been hit, restaurants have been hit, uh, independent contractors have been hit. Uh, so people are suffering and uh, our state is gonna be in a huge deficit if we don't get more federal money. That means education could be cut. Uh, so we have to figure out a way to open responsibly uh, without putting people at risk. And the real solution to this is the testing. And that's why some of us have been so frustrated. That's why Senator Sanders and I proposed a bill, $75 billion. We're willing to give the president, go build masks, go build basic equipment, get, get this country uh, ready. One point, I mean, Mark Andreessen, who leans conservative, but brilliant entrepreneur, started Netscape. And he had this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that I recommend everyone reads. And he says, I get that the United States, you know, hard to build a vaccine. I get that it's hard to build antivirals, but masks? How can we not, we're the greatest economy in the history of the world. How can we not produce enough masks? How can we not produce enough gloves, sanitizers? I mean, these are things that we should do and be able to do. I want to bring in a voice that you might be familiar with, Craig Fugate. We talked to him in this program three weeks ago. He was the head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency for the entire Obama presidency. And he talked about something that he detected happening in California and like-minded parts of Washington State. I want to play that sound for you and have you get your reaction. One of the interesting things I saw, because I do some work on the West Coast, was how in San Francisco and the Valley and then up in Seattle, uh, big tech companies canceled conferences very soon after it was realized it was spreading at conferences. And then they began moving towards work from home well before there were actually any stay-at-home orders. Now, in your district, if I understand correctly, are Yahoo, Apple, and Intel, among others. And is this thing that Craig Fugate is talking about a reflection of the Santa Clara decision and that six county, additional six-county decision about taking this serious earlier than others. Absolutely. He's absolutely right. And in my district also is Google and Tesla and they all uh, were actually even ahead of Dr. Cody. I mean, one of the things with techies is that, you know, one of the lines is that they, they consider their body their temple. And, you know, people like Tim Cook are out <laughs> working out and they, they're really health conscious. And some of them are, you know, real health nuts. And so they took this exceedingly seriously uh, very early on. Uh, venture capitalists closed. Uh, these companies canceled uh, uh, conferences. They had people go uh, work from home. Now, I think your point early on is very important, that that's quite privileged because there are a lot of people who don't have mm -hmm. the work for home right. option. And, you know, I read somewhere that less than 20% of African-Americans and less than 20% of uh, the Latinx community actually can work from home because they're in these jobs that are uh, it require physical labor and get the groceries that you and I are, are having. So, uh, I think this, it's two points. One is, what can we learn from the tech community's response in terms of listening to data? But two, uh, what do we have to do as a country to overcome this extraordinary divide between those who are capable of working from home and remotely uh, and those who are not? And uh, this crisis, while it's affected everyone, hasn't affected everyone equally. It's been disproportionately borne by uh, minority communities and essential workers. It's an it's a, an enormous topic, and I don't expect you to have a unified five point answer. But what are your thoughts on addressing that? Because not only is this a matter of inequality in terms of risk and availability of labor, meaning do you have a job where this is even practical? Mm, answer no, which means you have to work. Second of all, we have found that for reasons that I believe still elude many scientists. There is a higher susceptibility in certain minority 
populations? Are these two things linked or are they just reinforcing? And how do we address that? Yeah, well, Major, I mean, I think people will write and should write books on, on that topic. But here are some of uh, my initial thoughts. First, for all of the talk of a digital age and the robots are coming, I think this is a sobering reminder of how much we're dependent on physical labor. Right? We still need people who drive the trucks. We still need people at the warehouses. We still need people who pick up the trash. We still need people who go to the hospitals. There are over 60 million people who are essential and are still working. And this is something that I've been aware of in Silicon Valley, because these workers, the janitors, the food service workers, the bus drivers, they've been saying people don't notice us, but we're the glue that keeps the economy going. They've been saying that for a decade. I think they're finally being noticed. Uh, someone said, well, I'm glad you finally see that we're essential. You know, is this thing going to last a couple months? Or are you really going to think that this is uh, essential work? So I think first is just a shift in our perspective, all of ours about uh, the dignity and the value that these folks provide and not this sense that, oh, somehow everyone's going to go code or everyone's going to go do remote work. Uh, and if they, we do realize that we're so dependent on these workers, uh, how do we make sure that they're protected? How do we make sure that they have basic uh, hazard pay? I mean, think about this. I mean, if, you, if someone is doing the same exact job after COVID than before COVID, but now they have risk to themselves and their family, the market says that they should be paid more. I mean, what, that's obvious. How do we make sure they get paid more? How do we make sure they get certain childcare uh, provisions? I, I think that this country needs to have uh, that conversation about the dignity of, of work and labor. Uh, it, and hopefully it's not just a short-term memory in this crisis. Right. And oftentimes the phrase applies to a higher minimum wage as a living wage. If I hear you correctly, you're saying living slash protective wage. That's a, exactly. It's a living wage. It's a, a protective wage. It's a it's a, a wage that recognizes their health care, their, their child care, but at the very least to protect them. Right. And it's not you can't just blame uh, Amazon, though. And the reason I say this is because I'm getting the packages. I don't know if you get packages. We get packages, right? So we're we're all beneficiaries. It's not just the Amazon stockholders. The point is we're all beneficiaries of this system. And there are people who are literally going to the warehouses so that we can get our packages. And they're being packed in some cases like sardines. They don't have basic equipment. They don't have uh, basic uh, social distancing. So, so here's my point. Look, we can fight about whether they should get health care and a living wage, and people can say, oh, Ro, you're just a California progressive. But is there any American who doesn't think they should have basic safety? That if they're going and doing things so the rest of us can go about our lives, that they are entitled to basic sanitation and safety? I feel like that should be something we can all agree on. That's the voice of Ro Khanna, and the answer to the question still hanging in the air. Yes, I, I get packages. Yeah, yeah. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Back with Rokan on the other side of this break. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back, Ro Khanna, Democratic Congressman from the state of California, 17th District, to be precise, Santa Clara, Alameda counties, as already discussed. He mentioned earlier a reference to legislation co-authored and co-sponsored with uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. It's worth also pointing out, in case you don't know in the audience, Congressman Khanna was co-chair of the Bernie Sanders for President campaign. That's correct? Yes, yes. Still proud of it. So how, how, how enthusiastic or unenthusiastic are you about Joe Biden? You know, I'm enthusiastic of making sure uh, that we defeat Donald Trump and that we elect Vice President Biden. I was in the Obama administration. I uh, served there for two years. He did a uh, remarkable job during the recovery and led some of those uh, efforts. Uh, but here's what I say to, to, to Bernie supporters. I said, look, I don't sugarcoat it. I, I don't think Joe Biden is going to lead us into the next progressive era. I think he's going to be a bridge. Uh, but if uh, here's the choice. You could either have Donald Trump who's going to stack the Supreme Court in a way that I don't care who the president is, Medicare for all uh, and uh, a, live, a living wage and uh, other uh, policies we want about uh, bargaining rights. But the courts aren't going to allow it. Or you could get Joe Biden who can stop the damage and be a bridge. And then we can have a progressive uh, future after that. 
So I saw a poll this week that caught my eye about the former vice president. Uh, it was in Politico, done in con- consultation with the Morning Consult polling group, which has a fine reputation. And that poll said that 28% of Democrats, Democrats who intend to vote in the 2020 election, quote, definitely, unquote, or quote, probably, unquote. So the two are definitely and probably 28% of Democrats surveyed favor replacing Joe Biden with another nominee. Your reaction? Well, look, I think uh, the history of our party is we always uh, are uh, second guessing ourselves. And I I wonder what that number was when Bill Clinton in in 92. And uh, I remember with Obama, people were saying, oh, can he win? He's got a Muslim middle name. Uh, That's just the the nature of of Democrats, uh, but uh, absent uh, uh, something incredibly dramatic, uh, Joe Biden will be our nominee. And having someone else come last minute who hasn't gone through the democratic process, uh, I don't think that's healthy and that would uh, generate uh, a lot of uh, concern. I, I think we have someone who's after 25 candidates and look, I fought very hard. There, uh, there are tapes of me saying, not great things about Joe Biden. But the point is, we litigated it and he won. And why do you think he won? Because it was not the conversation that you and I had when we bumped into each other in Iowa. It wasn't the conversation I was having with Democrats in New Hampshire or Nevada. Oh, yeah, uh, Biden's going to lose the first three and then take the whole process by storm. Maybe they're some of the most... uh, Persistent optimists within the Biden campaign thought that was going to happen, but not, hardly anyone else I talked to in Democratic politics thought that was going to happen. And after the first three contests, especially the Nevada caucuses, there was a sense that there was this momentum beneath Senator Sanders that, if not unstoppable, was formidable, and then it all petered out. Why? No, well, um, I agree with you. I mean, we didn't think that Biden was going to emerge. Uh, in fact, for a while, we thought that Bloomberg was the more serious threat post. Uh, New Hampshire, obviously, we turned out to be wrong, but uh, we underestimated uh, his uh, his coming back. Uh, I'd say a couple things. One, it shows the absolute importance of the African-American uh, support uh, to be the nominee. You cannot be the Democratic nominee without uh, major support from the African-American community and from the African-American community in the South, which is different than the African-American community in California or the Midwest. Uh, And I think the progressive movement has to do a much better job in building uh, those relationships. I mean, for all the talk about whether Iowa should go first, uh, if I were South Carolina, I'd probably want to stay exactly where I am. It turns out they they ended up being the most critical uh, primary. Uh, And uh, the margin of Biden's win there uh, was, I think, a big indicator because it showed that he was going to get huge margins in those southern states. And that would be very hard for any candidate to overcome. So I, I just think that one lesson is we, we have to do better there. The second thing is uh, people were looking for uh, a known quantity, I think, against Trump. Uh, they didn't want to roll the dice. And uh, Biden had that advantage of having been uh, a vice president for eight years under Barack Obama. You mentioned earlier when I asked you about that poll, so 28% of Democrats probably or definitely would prefer another nominee. You said, well, that's kind of the historic hand-wringing of the Democratic Party. And there is a component of that that is certainly true. I've noticed that. And it's not only in the Democratic Party. I saw hand-wringing Republicans about uh, George W. Bush for a period of time before the 2000 election. But this poll also brought into sharp relief uh, another potential point of anxiety for Democrats, and that is Tara Reid's allegations against the vice president. Are you satisfied with the seriousness with which you believe he has taken those allegations, the transparency with which he has tried to address them, and the consistency of his message about how you take allegations seriously and then try to move on? It's a fair question. Uh, First, I would say that a person should hear uh, Tara Reid in her own words. I did that. I went to Katie Halper's podcast. I listened to her uh, and that the public should then uh, make up their minds. It's not for for me to say. uh, And uh, I think that's a consistent position. If you believe that uh, all uh, survivors should be heard and uh, people should have the opportunity to, to tell their stories, uh, and, and do so with respect, uh, then you have to uh, have that apply uh, consistently. But I think that the vice president, uh, you know, showed that he was willing to engage. He didn't just have some staffer go in. He's answering the questions. Uh, he isn't saying, oh, I'm not going to answer more questions about this. 
Uh, they're working to try to get the documents that need to be uh, released, released. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I also think there does have to be uh, some process by which uh, people like the vice president get to uh, make their case. And then it's up for the, the public to make the determination. You made a reference to uh, the vice president, the former vice president, trying to make an effort to get the documents. And yet the way he set it in motion seemed almost dead ended from the beginning. He said, well, I'll ask the National Archives. And immediately we went and the National Archives said, uh, we don't have any authority. And then they said, well, go to the secretary of the Senate. And they said, well, we don't have any authority. And it was a gesture toward transparency that didn't have much follow through. Are you satisfied with that? Well, my view is just get it out there. I think here's what happens. I, I don't think Senator Sanders would mind me sharing this. That, you know, for the longest time, there was this thing, get get your taxes out, get your taxes out. And the Sanders wasn't doing it. And I think partly it was like, oh, did we make enough charitable contributions or not, et cetera. We were just like, just get it out. No one's going to be a one-day story if you didn't do enough charitable contributions. And sure enough, he got it out and it was a one-day story. Had he not gotten it out, uh, then it would have been a, something that would have dogged him for the whole campaign. And I think similar with Vice President Biden. I mean, who knows? Maybe there's some embarrassing thing in there about some conversation. I mean, certainly if all my con- uh, documents came out from my congressional office, I'm sure there would be something embarrassing in there. But to the extent they can uh, make it focused, I mean, obviously they shouldn't be releasing everything and be as transparent and get stuff out. Uh, my view is that's always better, even if you have a one-day or two-day negative story. Uh, transparency is always better. And that's your advice to the Biden campaign. Do this as fast as you can. Yeah, no, I, I mean, they beat our candidates. I don't know if they're going to be taking my advice, but uh, uh, yeah, my view is... But you're not a disinterested party in this. No, I'm not a disinterested party. And I think that the, the vice president, look, the, the part about the vice president that's most compelling, ultimately, is I think his decency, his humanity, right? Even when he used to close those debates and when he used to talk about Bo Biden and he used to talk about the sense of loss and resilience and overcoming, that's when I found him most moving. And so I think you want, if you want that part of Biden to come through, which is, I think, his next attribute, then you've got to get this out there and let uh, him uh, show uh, the parts of him that that are empathetic. And do you think in the end that will be a strong, if not strongest, point of contrast with the president as this campaign, whenever it gets traction, does get traction? I do. I think it's a, I do think that at the ultimately it's about his sense of decency, his sense of uh, American character, American empathy. I think the most, uh, the, the, the most moving part uh, that I've actually ever seen Joe Biden, I think it was on Anderson Cooper or something, and he was talking about uh, uh, someone who was elderly in, an, in, in a nursing home and uh, their child that, uh, waving to them from the glass window. Uh, and you can just tell when he was speaking uh, that his own family's story and loss was on his mind. Uh, I, I think our country is going through a lot and we're going to want someone who has empathy, who cannot, who understands that and can connect with that. Uh, and to me, that's the vice president's biggest attribute. That's the voice of Ro Khanna, Democratic Congressman, 17th District of California. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to Watching and Thoroughly Enjoying the Takeout. Back in a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Rokana is our special guest, Democratic Congressman, 17th District of California. Also, as he mentioned earlier, if you missed it, uh, invited to join and agreed to join the president's task force on reopening the country. So I want to recenter our conversation about COVID-19 as it goes forward. And Congressman, I want to play you some sound bites from the president's trip to Phoenix where it sounded to me, and I want to get your perspective on this, is if he thinks the battle has, if not largely been won, nearly been won. I want to play those. Arden, that's three and four back-to-back, if you please. Our country is now in the next stage of the battle, a very safe, phased, and gradual reopening. It's a reopening of our country. Who would have ever thought we were going to be saying that? A reopening, reopening. I was saying before that We're going to have a transition period, third quarter. It's going to transition. Fourth quarter is going to be very good, we think, very good. Two thoughts there, and I want to get your reaction to both, Congressman. One, that we're in the next stage. Looking at the statistics, looking at the modeling, 
looking at the rise in cases in places not New York and New Jersey, which appear to be increasing in other parts of the country, it doesn't seem like we're on the next, doesn't appear to me we're on the next stage. And also this upbeat sense of the economy having a trough-like problem in the third quarter, but bouncing back pretty strong in the fourth quarter. Again, I wonder if that's overly optimistic and not comprehending the depths of the economic dislocation we're living through right now. Well, I think both of your points are uh, spot on. I mean, the, the the first is that the disease hasn't gone anywhere. I mean, there was hope that it would uh, dissipate in the summer. That hasn't turned out to be true. Uh, there are promising work on antivirals. Gilead is doing something. There's promising work uh, on vaccines. There, People are working at uh, rapid uh, pace, and it's, it's frankly impressive. Uh, but that's still uh, months away, uh, if not a year away. And until we get either a vaccine or a cure, uh, the reality is this is going to be with us. Now, the question is, okay, what do we what do? We do? Uh, because just having a total shutdown of an economy for a year will probably cause equal devastation in other ways. And so this is a very challenging issue. But the, the uh, issue should be one of focused on testing and some consistent, gradual approach and leveling with people that it's not easy, that we haven't won. I mean, I think of you know, Winston Churchill's great leadership. Part of the great leadership was he was candid. He said, look, things aren't going well, things, but we're going to be resilient. And I, I, I think the president would do better just leveling with people. Americans are capable of understanding uh, the complexity. And he could say, look, this is going to be fits and starts. It's going to, this thing may come back. We hope not. We're going to try. Uh, it's a complex trade-off. Uh, and I think if he, if he were to say that, he'd get actually more sympathy from people than just sort of saying, I want the economy to come roaring back. I also want to play for you some sound from an interview I did for my other podcast, Debriefing the Briefing. It's a busy time here working from home with uh, someone who I know you know, Democratic Co- uh, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut. And our conversation was about his analysis of protesters in certain state capitals. California has not seen this, but there has been some discord with the governor, but places like Michigan and others have seen much greater numbers and in certain cases, armed protesters chafing against stay-at-home orders. Arden, those are sound bites five and six, please. It scares the hell out of me when uh, I see armed protesters marching on state capitals Um, It scares the hell out of me when I see the president of the United States egging on those armed protesters through his social media feed. He has also sought to fire up his base, which often includes these angry armed protesters who I worry at some point um, uh, won't just be brandishing weapons, but may uh, ultimately fire one of those weapons if the president continues uh, to egg them on. Do you share those concerns? I do share the concern that uh, speech uh, could incite violence. Look, I, I have no problem. I'm a big First Amendment person. I understand that people, they have the right to protest. They have the right to protest. But uh, our First Amendment says that you can't protect speech that possibly can incite violence. And that, uh, yes, we have the right to speech. We have the right to protest, but not in ways that put other people at harm. So uh, I would do anything to defend those people's right to protest, to challenge me, to challenge the governor, uh, to, to even they have the right to, to, to bear arms in the Second Amendment. They don't have to take those arms in public places where they're risking uh, violence. And I, I don't think that's unreasonable. And within the, the context, you might have had a constituent say this to you. If you haven't, you may in the future. Hey, who, who gives the governor the right to tell me I have to stay at home for X period of time, or I have to wear something if I go to the store. On what basis of the Constitution or my own reduction of civil liberties is that permitted? You would say what? I would say that the Constitution uh, gives our government the right to provide for our common defense and for our security. And if we were at war, as this president often likes to say, I don't think anyone would uh, mind if the government had certain restrictions uh, to keep us all safe. That's been part of our history. Now, we can debate that. We can debate whether the response is appropriate or not. I had called for a national shelter in place 
uh, back in March, echoing Bill Gates and others. And people can certainly debate that and say, oh, that was not right. And we need to have the economy. Uh, but certainly the government has the right to do it in a, in a democratic society. And people have the right to protest. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I hope, uh, one of the silver linings of this, this entire crisis was I finally thought the country for brief moments had come together. Uh, we were all uh, complying, actually, quite remarkably, with shelter in place, much more so than people thought. Uh, the Congress actually suddenly seemed to work. Look, those bills weren't perfect. There are a lot of criticisms. But who would have thought that Congress and the president would be able to get together to quickly allocate almost $3 trillion? And it seemed for a brief flickering moment in this country that that common culture, that sense of common purpose uh, was there. And I just hope that we can tone down uh, the excessive partisanship and attacks and see if we can summon that. I mean, other generations have done that. This is kind of our challenge. Uh, and can we find that common American purpose? You're in Washington because you're anticipating the House coming back into session next week. It's not in this week. The Senate is. There's sort of an underlying part of the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's rhetoric that the House is ill-serving the country by not being at work. Your response? Well, we have been at work. I mean, I'm on conference calls every day that have been throughout April. Uh, we've had committee hearings. We've had at least two or three conference calls with the entire caucus. Uh, I do think we should have remote working in, in Congress. I mean, uh, it shows that we aren't prepared. I mean, let's say there was some attack, God forbid, on Washington, D.C. What would be the alternative? I, we, why have we not thought through how uh, an institution like Congress uh, uh, can work? And I think we need to be better prepared on remote working uh, and to, to have oversight. Uh, but it's just false to say we haven't been uh, actually engaged in work. That's the voice of Ro Khan, a Democratic congressman from California, 17th District. To be specific for our radio audience, we have to say farewell, but those on CBSN, stay tuned. And podcast platforms, get ready for the takeout outtake, especial. I'm Major Garrett. See you next week. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout Outtake Especial. Our special guest, Ro Khanna, Democratic Congressman, 17th District of California. Covered lots of issues. And on this uh, fun and games sort of the part of the program, I want to get to the things that make it the fun and games part. We'll get to some serious stuff in a second. But because you've been on the program before, Congressman, you've already asked, asked, been asked and answered the three threshold questions. So I want to Slightly COVID-19 specify the three threshold questions. So during the period of time that you have been working remotely and living in this new normal, is there anything that you have either binge watched or read or heard, whether it's an audiobook or music, that you found particularly inspiring or enjoyable? Well, you know, I'm going to have to answer honestly. I've been binge watching Daniel Tiger because that's what my two-year-old watches. And so suddenly we got this <laughs> sense that I started telling him that, you know, there was this uh, uh, character, Mr. Rogers, uh, who Daniel Tiger is based on. And so I went and we watched the original, the first episode of Mr. Rogers, uh, where he hangs up his coat in the closet. And uh, then I uh, saw... Rogers' testimony to the Senate, uh, which is just remarkable. He convinces these hardline Republicans uh, to fund public broadcasting. And so that's uh, Mr. Rogers is my inspiration and, and uh, what we've been watching at, at home. Very good. Have you read anything recently that you have found uh, profound or escapist? You know, I've been uh, reading a, a book, uh, Martha Nussbaum, who's a uh, a philosopher, the uh, the monarchy of fear, and she talks about how uh, polarized our culture is, and and why uh, we're so polarized. One of her interesting insights, I won't go too long, is she says that when kids are really young, uh, they uh, don't have any concept of death, and so there's no fear of being alone. And as we grow older, uh, we start to fear. Uh, uh, death and we start to be alone. And so how important it is for a young child to have a sense of what it means to be alone early on in their development. But it's a brilliant book in understanding not just the political debates, but the psychological, philosophical challenges of the culture uh, that's led us to such polarization. And the title again is? Uh, the Fear of Monarchy. Fear of monarchy, monarchy of Fear. Monarchy of Fear. Monarchy, monarchy of Fear. Very good. 
Um, how have you and your wife and your two children uh, adapted in the last six weeks? What have you done differently? What have you learned in that adaptation process? What do you hope you'll be able to do better? <laughs> If anything, so, so this is a I, 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 <laughs> Feel I free, yes, all feel my, free. All, uh, <laughs> Unburden yourself, all, Congressman. All really, just let it go. Been, like magnified, right? It's like one thing when you're spending an hour with your family. It's another thing when you're spending the, the whole day. It's like things that people didn't notice suddenly. Notice all, all, all these flaws, but uh, you know, I think the silver lining of it. Both my wife and I were talking about it, and we said, you know, there are a lot of things we schedule. Um, they probably aren't just that, that necessary. And, uh, you know, we, we really have enjoyed the time uh, with our kids. Uh, obviously, we'd love to spend time more with the friends and family, but there's a sense of you focusing on what really matters and who really matters in your life. Uh, and, and for me, that's been, I've, I, I was uh, going all over the country for a year for Sanders, uh, and now I've really felt like I've gotten to, to, to get to know my kids in a, in a, in a real way. And that's, that's been a, a blessing. And I understand a lot of people have had great loss. Uh, but for me, that's been a silver lining. You talked about uh, your uh, flaws becoming a little bit more visible. One of the phrases I think some of us have gotten accustomed to around COVID-19 is this idea of shedding. That means you are shedding the virus, even though you're asymptomatic, you don't know about it. I think myself, I'll just speak for myself, there's probably been a shedding of some flaws uh, as this has continued uh, <laughs> during the uh, stay-at-home orders as well. Uh, again, only speaking for myself. Um, I want to ask you something that's uh, borderline philosophical, because I've read a couple of stories with headlines and a, a kind of a cheeky thrust to them, like, hey, why don't we just admit it um, the planners for the apocalypse were right, meaning the people who worried about something terrible happening and who stocked up their supplies and they're le generally, if you're going to categorize them philosophically, would be either libertarian or conservative. They were right. And then progressives have said, see, we told you all along these things about living wages and the essential workforce. We were right about those things. Is it possible, Congressman, that in, in the main, one of the things we can take away from this is both were right about certain things? Sure. I, I think what this probably teaches us is the limits of politics, the limits of uh, uh, human beings' ability to control uh, a, a, a nation, to control the world, to control our surroundings. I mean, ultimately, uh, just like in the Middle Ages, we're still vulnerable to disease, even with all the advance of technology. And I think if this doesn't give everyone a sense of, humility about uh, the limits of our own uh, perspective. I don't, I don't know what will. And, and I, I actually think that could be the hope for emerging from this, that uh, we realize we don't have a monopoly of the truth. We don't all have all the answers. And we start to listen to each other more uh, to, to nudge our way out of, out of a crisis. And as you serve on this president's reopening uh, America task force, one of the things he's recently said about something he believes he was right about, which is U.S. manufacturing. And one of the things we discovered to our horror is we had these very long supply lines of things that became instantly essential to us that we were no longer making in the United States. Was he right about that? Yeah, well, I, I joke around sometimes with the White House. I wrote a book in 2012 called Why Manufacturing Still Matters for, uh, the, uh, for America. Of course, like 10,000 people read it, and then Trump just took the platform and became president. But <laughs> no, look, I think, uh, I, I, I think uh, this is not a partisan issue. Yes, we need to have more manufacturing capability in the United States. And I wish, I wish instead of the border wall and the divisive things that Trump does, that he would focus on helping build America. That's what I actually thought could get bipartisan uh, appeal, right? I mean, and that's what I thought he would do. He kind of likes putting his name on everything. He was building things in New York. Let's build America. Let's build our manufacturing capacity. Let's build our technology, uh, help make sure that the, these shortages never happen again. I think if he were to lead with that, he would find a lot of Democrats uh, willing to support that. That's the voice of Ro Khanna, our special guest. It's been a pleasure, Congressman, to your family, to you. Be well, be safe, and we will see you around Washington in whatever capacity that is permissible in the weeks ahead. I appreciate it, Major. Always, uh, always fun doing the, the podcast. Thanks. Appreciate it. That's it, folks. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. 
CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.